right, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Welcome, new faces, visitors today. Glad to be able to spend some time with you this morning. Um, Jenny uh, alluded to this a moment ago, but um, in perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon, he said this. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, that's one of those statements that Jesus made that's easy to kind of read past and be like, well, that's nice. That's a, that's a, a very friendly thing to say. It sounds kind of almost like a little bit of a feel-good cliche. You know, we should just sort of be nice people. Um, but the problem with that conclusion in reading that statement is that Jesus did not deal in feel-good platitudes. He actually meant what he said. And that statement right there is deeply inconvenient. It is profoundly challenging, and it's also very hopeful if we embrace and internalize what Jesus was actually saying with these words. If you are a peacemaking person, not merely kind of mild-mannered, but a peacemaking person, someone who does the selfless, sacrificial, emotionally laborious task of making peace. If you're that person, Jesus says, you will be blessed. You could actually translate that word um, from the original Greek language of the New Testament, blessed. You could translate it happy. It kind of had the same meaning. Um, You'll be blessed. You'll be happy. And you'll be called a child of God. Now, what does that mean? You'll be a child of God. Does that mean You have to be a peacemaker in order to be saved, to become a child of God. Um, No, it doesn't mean that. It can't mean that, because when you look at the whole context of the New Testament, uh, we are saved by our faith in Christ, by God's grace. That is it. We don't have to check a bunch of boxes and prove ourselves worthy of God or anything like that. So this is talking about something else. What this is saying is that if you are a peacemaker, you resemble God. You, You exhibit a family trait, by being a peacemaker, because the New Testament teaches us that in going to the cross, Jesus made peace with us. It says that in Romans. He made peace with us. We were at odds, and he made peace. God is the ultimate peacemaker, and so to be a peacemaker in our lives means you are living out a family trait. You resemble God. You look like a child of God. That's what Jesus was getting at. Now, peacemaking is never easy. It requires deliberate effort. It rarely feels like it's working, even if it is. It often does not turn out as you would expect. And uh, we seldom have the opportunity and the luxury of being peacemakers in some sort of distant, neutral, unscathed manner. Often to be a peacemaker means you're in the middle of it. You are in the middle of it. You are seeking peace, fighting for peace in a situation that directly involves you in which you might feel deep personal resentment, pain, and hurt. And so you don't want to be a peacemaker. That's the problem. So there's this tough inner landscape of becoming a peacemaker. It is a tough uphill emotional climb to want to be a peacemaker. Also, there's this exterior challenge, the cultural landscape that we live in, especially now. That makes it doubly challenging. Uh, Carl Bernstein, a longtime journalist who famously 
uh, was one of the people who kind of broke up in the Watergate scandal and, and took down Richard Nixon. Uh, Bernstein has recently said that he believes America is in a cold civil war because the political, social, ideological divisions in our nation are so deep, so painful, it's as if we're two nations warring culturally with each other. Now, some people may not want to go so far as to call it a cold civil war, but everybody would agree we are at a very uh, polarized time in our country and in our culture, fueled, of course, by the 24-hour outrage factory that is social media. And we, the church, are not immune to this. We are caught up in it with everybody else. And we are often made to feel like we've got to take sides, right? We've got to join the fight, push back, join in the social media artillery volleys, become combatants in the culture war. But is that really how we, the church, are meant to think and behave? It's easy to join the fight. Especially if we Christians kind of think like, well, Christian values are less valued now. You know, our culture is less Christian now. We've got to sort of stand up. I think we need to regain some perspective here. Um, Because in Jesus' day, the New Testament era, the first century church, the time when he said these words, uh, the church was actually violently persecuted. That was literally happening. It wasn't a perception or or an idea. It was actually happening. Uh, There's a biblical scholar from the UK uh, named Larry Hurtado who wrote this great book. It's like 90 pages long. I highly recommend it. It's called, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? His point being that uh, there was no social advantage to becoming a Christian in the early centuries. None. They must have really believed it to be true. Because there was nothing to be gained. Early Christians were ridiculed, harassed, arrested for their faith, shamed, rejected from their families. They were truly facing attack, which makes Jesus' statement about peacemaking all the more profound. Because even in an era when Christians were literally persecuted, Jesus called them to be peacemakers with the ones waging war against them. Love your enemies, he said. Forgive turn the other cheek. Those words were landing in a culture violently going after them. So we, in 21st century Houston, are not off the hook about peacemaking. If the first century church, going through everything they went through, were called to peacemakers, we certainly are. And that's what this series is going to be about this week and over the next two weeks, is how can we step into this countercultural call of peacemaking that Jesus so clearly laid down in the rest of the New Testament offers. What will your voice be when you experience a a political dividing line with somebody else? What will your voice be when, when you have a difference in ideology with someone maybe that you work with? What will your voice be when you uh, come up against a sensitive cultural barrier in our country? Or when you experience personal pain or personal conflict, you've been deeply wounded by somebody you care about? What's your voice going to be? What will our voice be as the church, the collective public voice? Is it going to be a dividing voice or a healing voice?
We're going to explore that today and over the next couple of weeks. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Um, if you're not familiar with the layout of the New Testament, the book of Titus is in the, uh, the New Testament, kind of in the middle there. Um, it's a short little letter, so it's easy to skip past if you're not eagle-eyed when you open up your Bible. Um, if, if you don't own a Bible, by the way, or you would prefer to read in hard copy, feel free to grab one of those on the table, and you can actually take one of those home if you don't own a Bible, but we encourage people to you know, get their highlighters and pens out and really kind of dive into the scriptures uh, along with us on Sundays. Titus 3. Of course, we'll put the, um, the text on the screens as well. Um, so just a snapshot of what the, uh, Titus is. We say the book of Titus, it's actually not a book, it's a letter. It's a real ancient letter that was written in the first century by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was one of the key leaders in first century Christianity as it spread from Israel out into the broader Mediterranean world. And Titus was one of Paul's co-workers in ministry. He was like a leader. Titus was a leader in the first century church. Uh, and Paul was like his mentor. So Paul's writing this letter to Titus, so it's like a leadership conversation. He's talking about how they can lead the churches well in this difficult first century climate. Uh, We know that Titus was delegated the responsibility of leading churches on the Greek island of Crete. It's the largest of the Greek isles. So there was a collection of new churches there, and uh, Titus was over those churches. So Paul's writing to him to give him advice. So that's what Titus is. And the the section we're going to read today is Paul talking to Titus about peacemaking, about how we are supposed to act in the face of all kinds of potential conflict. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses. I'm just going to read it once through. And then afterwards, I want to just pull out a few key lessons that I think are very relevant for our lives today. So Paul writes this to his friend Titus. He says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. So let's rewind to the beginning of that passage and kind of pull out some of the things that Paul is telling us. He starts in verse 2 by speaking to the temperament of those who follow Christ. He says we must be peaceable. If you're taking notes, I would highlight that word. It's in verse 2. Be peaceable. 
He's talking about what we're supposed to be like, peaceable. And Paul was originally writing in Greek, which is the language of the first century Mediterranean world. And the Greek word he used there is a really interesting word. In the ancient sources in the Greek world, it was used of a person who was unconquerable because they could not be moved to fight. And it was also used, that word, of a structure, like a fortress that's like impregnable, invincible. It is not even attacked because it's hopeless. It could never be destroyed. So to be peaceable, in Paul's mind, is not weakness. It's not pacifism. It's to be so strong, so secure in who Christ is and who you are because of him, you are able to stand firm and not be drawn into quarrels unnecessarily. And as a result, you can remain confidently, and I would highlight this too, gentle toward everyone. Gentle toward everyone. And then Paul continues to tell us why. Why should we be this way? Verse 3, he, he, he starts to talk about life without Christ. What is that life like? What, what, what are we driven by? Verse 3, he says, foolish, we're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We live in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. He's describing a life filled with fighting, inner conflict, outer conflict. That is the trajectory our life is on without Christ's intervention. But we don't have to live that way, Paul tells us. We don't have to live a conflict-riddled life. And he goes on to say why in verse 4. It's this beautiful expression of what Jesus did for us. I'm going to read a few verses again. Notice the words that Paul uses to describe God. He says this, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Paul is saying, in Jesus, our whole lives are transformed. We have a new identity, a new purpose, the shape of our life, the the trajectory of our future. It's all new. And we have received these things from God. We've received his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his love. It's been poured out onto us. And as a result, we are meant to pour that out onto others. That's the picture Paul is painting. We were separated from God, alienated from him, at odds with him, at war against him as humanity. And Jesus came not to debate us, but to make peace with us. To bridge that divide, he did the work of building a bridge across that chasm of our estrangement. And then Paul says in verse 8, I want you to stress these things. If you're taking notes, highlight that phrase there. I want you to stress these things. What, What are these things? He had just talked about everything Jesus did for us. He wants you to stress that. Stress the why of peacemaking. Why are we peacemakers? We make peace with others because Jesus made peace with us. That's the why. And Paul's saying, stress that. That's the key. We're not just trying to be nice. We're trying to reflect toward others what God did toward us. So Paul has told us how, how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be peaceable. He's, he's painted a picture of what life is like without Christ. Then now what our life is like because of Jesus 
And then he continues to say what's going to undermine all of this. What's going to undermine our ability to be peacemakers? Verse 9, he says this, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Foolish controversies. This will derail your desire to be a peacemaker and reflect what Christ did for you toward others. Foolish controversies. The Greek word he uses there for foolish is moros. Anyone want to guess what English word comes from that? Avoid moronic controversies, literally. And genealogies, he says, quarrels about the law. What does that mean, genealogies? He's talking about an ideological rift here, a a theological rift in the early church. You had Christians who were from a Jewish background and Christians who were not from a Jewish background, Gentiles, and there was this debate, do you have to become Jewish to be a legit Christian? And the New Testament writers were very clear, no, you don't have to. But this debate was raging, and Paul is saying, so that's why it's saying genealogies. People were getting into, like, proving that they were, you know, uh, from a real Jewish family, so they have a certain standing and, and arguments about the law, meaning do we have to still obey the Old Testament laws about sacrifices and things because we're Christians now? Paul's saying all of that stuff, avoid it. The word, the Greek word for avoid literally means go around. Go around it. It's there. Go around it is what Paul's saying. He, he, they, these might be important discussions, and actually they are important discussions. Um, to talk about, you know, how are we saved and, you know, places of faith and, and works and all those kinds of conversations. And Paul, they may be important, but Paul is saying they are not worth dividing the church over. They are not worth breaking relationships over. Don't undermine the message of Christ in service of winning an argument. Because he saw a lot of that. He saw a lot of people not arguing in good faith, but arguing to win. And he says, go around it. Do not get pulled into this whirlpool of foolish controversy. Now, it is true that we as people of faith are called to be able to discuss our faith, explain our faith with openness, with gentleness, and there are times where we even have to disagree publicly with people and debate. There's a place for that, and that's good, and that's biblical. But we mustn't be tricked into thinking that God needs a defender, He doesn't need a bodyguard. God doesn't need a lawyer. The Almighty God is not vulnerable. And I think we need to really let that fact settle down into our hearts as people of faith. We are not called to be his defenders. We are called to be his ambassadors. We represent him. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this. We we come back to this passage a lot around here because we just think it's so central to what the life of faith is and what the church is meant to be about. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. More literally, Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Arguing? Reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, and we are called to reconcile with each other and be used by God to help others reconcile with him as well. It's a ministry of reconciliation. Paul's argument to Titus, and he makes it in other letters, and other New Testament writers make a similar argument, is that some issues are not worth arguing at all. They're not worth arguing about at all. Some of them are very important, but the relational cost would be so high to have the argument, it isn't worth it. Or maybe it's not worth it in that moment. We should be very selective about the battles that we pick. That's the picture the New Testament writers give us. Now look, there are some battles we always have to pick. If someone is deliberately distorting the message of Jesus, if someone in the church is needlessly and willfully causing disunity, that has to be confronted. All varieties of abusive and exploitative behavior, yes, we speak into those things, we confront those things, we have to do that. But Paul's basic point is this, we should not be known as argumentative people or people who relish conflict. That is not how we should be known. That is not what it looks like to be peacemakers like Jesus called us to be. So this means several things. It means you will hear political opinions you vehemently disagree with. It means you will hear family members say things at the holidays that make you squirm. It will take everything in you not to say something. You will see things online that deeply upset you. You will observe actions and attitudes in brothers and sisters in Christ that just baffle you and irk you, and you just feel you just got to confront this and, and hash it out. You'll have endless opportunities to be upset by others. And in many cases, you're going to have to walk away from that and just not have the argument. And that's hard. But in many cases, we have to. In fact, that's what Paul, if you notice the last couple of verses of the Titus passage, he said, look, if a person's being divisive, you warn them about it once. If they're being, continue, warn them again. And if they persist, just, just leave it. It doesn't mean write them off as people, but just don't have the conversation anymore. Just be done. More often than not, it is wise and it is Christ-like to not argue and not quarrel. It's more important to love a person as Jesus loves you, than to prove them wrong or air your opinion. Because to do that, to insist that we air our opinion and prove people wrong, it will undermine, it will erode and chip away at your ability to serve as an ambassador for Christ. To be his diplomat to a hurting world. The call of peacemaking is tough. It is an act of bridge building. In fact, that's why we use this image of this bridge uh, in the, the artwork for the, the series. Um, that's the Golden Gate Bridge being built. It was finished in 1937. People thought it couldn't be done. It was a, a mile. The Golden Gate was over a mile span. And uh, just, you know, this blinding fog rolls in without warning. And uh, the water's freezing cold. It's more than 300 feet deep. So they had to get under there and build these pillars, and uh, a lot of the work was happening out of sight. Um, very strong currents, very strong winds. It was slow, painstaking process. And that is a, a, a very biblical metaphor for peacemaking, the call that Jesus put in front of us. 
Peacemaking often feels like building an impossible bridge in the midst of the swirling currents of our pain, the cold depths of our pride, the blinding fog of our self-centeredness, the winds of our culture. It is an arduous emotional and spiritual feat that is only possible by the Spirit working in and through you. Peacemaking is more active than we would like. We have to go toward uncomfortable and painful conversations. It's also more passive than we would like. We have to let go of things that we would rather not let go of. If we are evaluating Christ's call of peacemaking by human standards, worldly standards, peacemaking often feels like losing. If you're doing it right, it feels like losing because it is inherently sacrificial. Being a peacemaker, a real peacemaker, means when you're hurt, you may have to be the one to begin the process of peacemaking and reconciliation, even if you feel you shouldn't have to be the one to start the conversation. Being a real peacemaker means when you're approached by someone who hurt you, you push aside all of your cynicism about it and you say, I'm going to try to make myself available for reconciliation if it's possible, even though nothing in me wants to do this. A real peacemaker shows restraint when they're offended. When people lie about you, you forego correcting the record even though you feel justified in doing so. A peacemaker, when they see friends or family members to people that they know having conflict with each other, find ways to encourage reconciliation, even if you risk annoying both of those people. I've had that happen. <laughs> Peacemaking means seeking out hard conversations, even when they haven't really um, shown themselves yet, when you think something might be off between you and somebody else. You have that conversation proactively and say, you know, I'm, I'm sensing a little something here. Is something going on? That's an uncomfortable conversation to have. Ask my staff. Uh, we, yeah, I insist on this all the time. I, I mean, we have awkward conversations all the time. Hey, when you said that the other day, I'm feeling like this. And, you know, anyway, it's, it's, it's a policy that we have. We don't let things fester. And we don't do it perfectly. And, um, but it's something that we try to put into practice. Peacemaking rarely feels like it's going well, even if it is. But we have to trust that Jesus calls us to something good, even if it doesn't feel good. So I want to wrap up by giving you two clear starting points. How do we start to embrace this call of peacemaking? Um, and I think there's kind of two angles of this, um, and it's how we should be and what we should do. What are we supposed to be like, and how are we supposed to act? So I want to start with the first of those. How should we be? And I want to go briefly to Galatians 5. This is where Paul famously talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, fruit is his metaphor of evidence. So if the Spirit is in you and changing you, transforming you from the inside out, there will be evidence of this in your life. You will bear fruit. It doesn't all happen overnight, but things will begin to change. And so Paul gives us kind of a list, like, hey, if the Spirit's in you, these things are going to become true of you. 
So he writes this in Galatians 5. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. He says forbearance. That means restraint. Forbearance is a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. My friends, these are peacemaking qualities. This is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, we're not going to provoke each other. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That means we have put to death the, the passion and the desire to be right and to win. We don't provoke each other. We're not going to be self-centered and quarrelsome. This is how we should be. The fruit of the Spirit is how we should be if we want to be peacemakers. But what should we do? How do we get started? Because sometimes we don't feel all those things right away. What should we do? Uh, James gives us a good start. There's many places we could look, but I think in James's letter, he gives us some good advice. James was Jesus's biological brother who did not believe in Jesus during his lifetime, by the way, and came to faith after Jesus's resurrection and then became the leader of the Jerusalem church. It's an amazing story. So James wrote this letter, and he wrote this in James 1, 19 to 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I think we're living in a time when many of us are committed to misunderstanding each other. We have a vested interest in misunderstanding each other. That is not a Christ-like posture. It's just not. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We won't be Christ-like if we're slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to anger. That, that does not line up with how Jesus has called us to be. We have to listen well. We have to speak less. We have to try to understand more. We have to try to assume less about other people. This doesn't mean that we ignore hard things or we're unwilling to engage difficult conversations. In fact, peacemaking, you do engage difficult conversations. But it means examining your own heart and giving others the benefit of the doubt, giving them grace, and trying to discover their heart too without making assumptions. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unfold more of this, how we do this. Uh, today we talked a little bit about kind of peacemaking in general, and if you have like ideological differences with people, we're going to dig in a little bit more next week to some of the cultural barriers we're experiencing in our country now that we see in our community, and how can we, how can our voice align with Jesus's voice as we find ourselves in these situations and conversations, and then also in the last week, we're going to talk about personal relationships, personal conflict, where it's very hurtful. How do you navigate that? How do you be a peacemaker in that kind of situation? Um, we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot just work hard to be a peacemaker and like check off all the boxes. We have to ask the Spirit to do this in us. 
We have to ask God to transform us into the peacemakers that we are called to be. And so I would encourage you to just begin praying that, Lord, I want to be a peacemaker in my life. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to look, but would you show situations to me in which I can be that peacemaker, whether it involves me or not, and help me to go about it in a way that honors you. And just begin praying that. Say, Lord, I want to resemble you. I want to exhibit that family trait of peacemaking. If Jesus was willing to make peace with us when we weren't interested or deserving in any way, how much more should we be willing to make peace with others? He went to the cross to make peace with you. We should be able to make that phone call or schedule that coffee or send that text message or start that conversation or ignore that insult because we look to Jesus as our example and we turn to him as our strength as well. As we do this, I want to just finish with Jesus' words one more time. Matthew 5 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God.